You know, a war correspondent is to journalism what a Navy SEAL is to the American military. Or what an emergency room doctor is to the medical profession. It's reporting on steroids. I mean, it's special ops journalism. A reporter gets embedded with the troops. He wears camo and a flak jacket. He works in the crosshairs, in the line of fire. His job is risky. It takes nerve. But because of the courage of a war correspondent, we get an unprecedented view of the battle. A war correspondent is committed to reporting the facts. And in this section here in the book of Revelation, John is acting as God's war correspondent. He's reporting on a spiritual battle. In fact, the spiritual battle, the battle of the ages, the war going on between God and Satan and its culminating conflicts. Remember in chapter 11, John is in Jerusalem. There he's embedded with God's two witnesses. They're an olive branch of peace that God has extended to the world. But Satan's madman murders these men in the streets. The treatment that these two men receive reveals the world's moral and spiritual bankruptcy. Oh, their bankruptcy. It's fitting that the war correspondent files his report in chapter 11. Again, though, in chapter 13, John goes behind enemy lines, this time to bring us an up-close and personal expose on this emerging tyrant who slaughters the two witnesses. John calls him the beast. And 13 is a chilling chapter when all of the animosity against God that's alive in the world today gets embodied in one person. This becomes scary. Satan's true motivations get revealed. But of all John's journalism, chapter 12 may be his most important. For John is embedded in a spiritual battle. He knows that what's playing out here in chapters 11 and 13 is really just the culmination of a long-running conflict. The battle that he's reporting on didn't break out just with the two witnesses. It's been brewing since the very beginning. In fact, John realizes that for us to really understand what's happening in these chapters... We need some background on this battle. The earth is in peril. Life as we know it is being threatened at this point in Revelation. The tiny people of Israel are a focal point of the conflict. And the question that begs to be answered is this. How did we get here? And that's where John picks up in chapter 12. He takes a step back and he lays out an overview of history. Verse 1 reveals that the struggle of all the ages begins with a woman. Now, I didn't make that up. That's uh, that's what we find for husbands who didn't marry a gal as wonderful as I did. I suppose this comes as no surprise. Chapter 12 opens. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. This is not just a woman. She's a lady. She's distinguished and prestigious. She's a spiritual debutante. And that's not all. She's pregnant. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now here's the first question. Who is this woman? Keep in mind, John wrote Revelation not just in the midst of a spiritual battle. His physical circumstances 
were also conflicted. You remember at this time, John is a POW in a Roman penal colony. The evil emperor Domitian had tried to kill John, tried to boil the dude in oil. The old coot couldn't be cooked. He was miraculously delivered. And thus Rome banishes John to this rocky island called Patmos. Now understand, as he writes the Revelation, he's surrounded by Roman guards. And these prisoners, they had no right to privacy, and so their letters could be subjected to censorship. John wanted to keep the guards out of his letters. He didn't want them to think that he was being subversive, and so he disguised his messages in symbols. Remember, John is a Hebrew, fluent in the Old Testament. And so the best way to decode his symbols is to refer back to the Hebrew Old Testament. And where in the Old Testament do we find a woman with this description? Well, Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, quotes the Hebrew forefather Joseph. He says, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. And that's when Joseph's dad, the patriarch Jacob, whose name later will be called Israel, he asked Joseph, Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed bow down to the earth before you? Joseph had 11 brothers as well. And in his dad's mind, they were all stars. You see, Jacob rightly saw the sun and moon and 11 stars as a reference to his own family, the family of Israel. To me, this is crystal clear biblically. The woman in Revelation chapter 12 is the Jewish people. Now, one Bible teacher once told me, you can learn a lot about a person's entire theology by how they interpret the woman in Revelation chapter 12. And I certainly agree with that. You know, there are folks today who interpret the woman of chapter 12 as the Virgin Mary. We can understand this to a point since the child... Her child turns out to be Jesus. It's understandable then why Mary gets identified. But there's a difference. Mary was a mother on earth. Notice this woman in chapter 11 is occupying heaven. Mary was never pregnant in heaven. She delivered her child on earth. Roman Catholics refer to Mary as the mother of God. This is a title the Bible never bestows. Mary mothered God's son on earth, but in heaven she's One of many believers. She's a child of God, not the mother of God. Certainly Mary was a godly lady, but never make more of her than the Bible does. You might embarrass her. Other folks see this woman as the church. But this can't be. I mean, the church didn't birth Jesus. Just the opposite occurred. It was Jesus who birthed the church. Well, I believe strongly that this woman is none other than the people of Israel. John couches her in unmistakable symbolism. Joseph's dream affirms her identity. Now it's interesting. Humans stay pregnant for nine months. Or at least they're supposed to. Rhinoceroses stay pregnant for 15 months. Elephants stay pregnant for 21 months. Ladies, ladies, ladies. Be glad you're not an elephant. But realize the nation Israel was pregnant with promise for 4,000 years. God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He later promised to King David. 
that through their collective lineage, a Savior would be born. Salvation would come through their descendant. Thus, Jesus was of Jewish stock. With this pedigree of promise, he was the child of Lady Israel. And it seems to me that you can usually tell when a woman's pregnant. A pregnant gal, she tends to radiate. She sparkles. A woman who's carrying a baby has a certain glow about her. You know, if I were the President of the United States, my first proclamation would be special treatment for all pregnant women. I believe they deserve it. Pregnant women would park in all handicapped parking spots. Go to the head of all checkout lines. All OBGYN waiting rooms would be required to have chairs with extra padding. Pregnant women would get control of the TV remote. As long as it's not football season. you got to draw the line somewhere. If you know a pregnant mom, I hope you're treating her with extra special care. But this wasn't the case with the woman here in Revelation 11. When she was ready to deliver, she was threatened by a devouring dragon. Notice verse 3. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. Wow, this, this appears like something out of Jurassic Park. What Steven Spielberg could do with a seven-headed dragon. This woman now has some scary company. You know, as you well know, our God is a triune God. That means He's one God who exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The true God is the great originator. But Satan is a copycat. He's an imitator, an impersonator. Satan's kingdom tries to come off like God's kingdom in that he seeks to fulfill his ambitions under a trio of leaders. And in the next two chapters, they're introduced. Chapters 12 and 13 present the unholy trinity, the dragon first, or Satan, the beast rising up out of the sea, or the Antichrist, as we'll meet next week, and then the beast coming out of the earth, the Antichrist's evil minion, the false prophet. Notice here, too, on the dragon, we find seven heads and ten horns. These are associated with the unholy trinity, especially the beast or the Antichrist in chapter 13. In Revelation 17, verse 7, we learn that the seven heads represent a geographical place. There are seven hills. And in the writings of antiquity, this would have been noticeable, for Rome was almost always referred to as the city on seven hills. Apparently, the political entity that Satan seizes control of and uses in these last days is a revival of Rome. It'll be centered in Europe. Ten horns represent a political base. These horns were seen by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7, verse 20. Evidently, the European confederacy that becomes Satan's end times power block will consist of ten nations or ten divisions or ten horns. The seven diadems, or the laurel reefs, they speak of the victor's crown. The authority and the power wielded by Satan and the beast will apparently be wrestled away from the nations. Now in verse 4, John gives us a little of this dragon's history. He says, His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. 
Now, if you're still having trouble identifying the dragon, you should drop down to verse 9. For there John refers to him by name. He calls him, so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. You know, the first time we see the devil in Genesis, he appears in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve as a dragon. Of course, you say, wait a minute, Sandy. I remember the story. He, didn't, he came as a snake. Well, he did. But remember, when the serpent was cursed, what happened? He belly flopped. He did. God sentenced him to crawl on his belly to eat the dust of the earth. We infer from that that beforehand, he must have had legs. And what is a dragon but a snake with legs? This is why it creeps me out every time I go into one of those Chinese restaurants. <laughs> Not only the MSG they put in your food, you know, but, but the dragons are everywhere in those restaurants. They, they decorate those, those things with dragons. That's, that's the ancient symbol for Satan. It's a biblical symbol. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 provide us some background on Satan. Did you know he was formerly an angel? The archangel, Lucifer? He was beautiful. He was a musical creature. Many people believe Lucifer was heaven's worship leader. That is, until pride entered his heart. At some point, he stopped worshiping God and he started worshiping himself. That's when God had to boot him off heaven's worship team. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says something amazing. It actually assumes his preexistence. Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus was there when Lucifer was demoted. And it wasn't just that Satan fell. According to verse 4, we're told, he took a third of the stars of heaven with him. Stars of heaven is a biblical idiom for angels. Reference Revelation 1 verse 20 or Job 38 verse 7. When Satan fell from heaven, a third of the angels joined the coup. Today, the fallen angels are actually the devil's demons. What a cast of characters we find in this battle of the ages. A dragon, a beast, the stars, and a pregnant lady. As most of you know, over the last year, Kathy and I, we've gone from zero grandkids to now four grandkids. I've had a pretty prolific year here. Which means that I've spent a lot of time here lately around pregnant women. And here's what I've noticed. No matter how well they're treated, the delivery can't come fast enough for a pregnant mom. I'll bet you've never met a woman who wasn't ready to give birth after her baby after nine months of pregnancy. A pregnant woman glows. But you know what else she does? She grows, and that's the problem. Her limbs swell with water, and the baby starts nudging her in the ribs, and she can't tie her shoes, and she waddles like a duck. I mean, at times, those nine months seem like an eternity. Well, ladies, just be glad you're not the pregnant woman found here in Revelation 12. She stays pregnant for 4,000 years, and she's treated harshly. Nothing goes smoothly for her. It's a high-risk pregnancy. It's a terrible delivery. John tells us, verse 3, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. The dragon stalks this lady until she gives birth, and then he tries to pounce on her child. That's no way to treat a mom and her baby. 
You know, the Bible teaches us that this conflict between the dragon and the woman began as far back as the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when God cursed the serpent, He said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And to this very day, I know very few women who like snakes. There is an enmity there. But here's where the plot thickens. He goes on and he says, And between your seed and her seed. Now wait a minute. Her seed? A woman doesn't have a seed. Obviously, the seed comes from the man. This is why many Bible scholars interpret this idiom as Jesus' virgin birth. The seed of the woman. He was born without a man's help. He was uniquely the woman's seed. Thus, there will be perpetual enmity or hostility between Jesus and this serpent. In fact, Genesis 3 predicts the battle will reach a climax. When Jesus shall bruise the serpent's head and he shall bruise Jesus' heel. In other words, this long-running conflict will turn violent. It will turn bloody. The serpent, the dragon, the devil himself will wound Jesus. He'll draw blood, but it won't be fatal. In the big picture, it's nothing but a heel bruise. It's Jesus who wields the decisive blow. He throws the knockout punch on the cross. It was Jesus who threw down his heavy sandal and crushed the serpent's head. And from that day forward, Satan's authority has been shattered. This is why Satan worked so hard to wipe out the Messiah before he was ever born. Very quickly after Genesis 3, Satan goes to work corrupting human hearts to the point where God regretted even creating mankind. I'm sure the dragon squealed with glee when he overheard God's plan to destroy the world with water. The devil thought that he had drowned out all hope of a savior. But God spared a man and his family, a man named Noah. He kept alive hope for the world, a world plagued by sin. And then God narrowed the promise down to a splinter of Noah's family, down to Israel and the heirs of Abraham. But again, Satan went to work on the destruction of this promise. He thought he had succeeded. The Red Sea was on one side. A vengeful, angry Egyptian army was on the other side. Surely the people of the promise would be annihilated now once and for all. But God again worked a miracle and he rolled back, rolled back the waters. And the Israelites walked safely on dry ground. Even after the promise had narrowed down to the lineage of David, numerous other attacks were launched on the royal family. A wicked queen, Athaliah, nearly wiped out the promise of a savior when she tried to kill off all of David's sons. She didn't know that one of the boys had been hidden by a priest secretly, later was brought to power in a priestly coup d'etat. I mean, you look at Jewish history. It's checkered with these multiple near misses where Satan tried his best but failed to wipe out the promise before the woman could give birth to the Messiah. And then by the time we get down to Bethlehem, oh my, this battle, it's seen its casualties. The struggle has been a bloody one. Whenever we visit Israel, we always visit the Olivewood store. It's located in Jerusalem. And the great thing about the Olivewood store, the best buys are the nativity sets. I mean, how cool is it to go to Jerusalem of all places and purchase a nativity set carved in Bethlehem that you can bring home and your family will enjoy for generations? 
Most of the nativities, they come with a Mary and a Joseph and an angel and shepherds and a few barnyard animals. And if you're a good haggler, haggler like I am, you can even get a few camels thrown in. But I'll bet you've never seen a nativity set with a dragon, have you? Never. And yet it's biblical. In fact, here is the real nativity scene. If you were in heaven, looking down on that first Christmas, here's what you'd see. Verse 3. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. The battle of the ages failed to negotiate a Christmas ceasefire. Messiah is born while a dragon with seven sets of sharp teeth stands nearby licking his chops. Satan couldn't have stood the thought of one day bowing down to this baby. Thus one author pens, the dragon wants to eat the child so he doesn't have to kiss his feet. And sadly, it was this fiery dragon who inspired the evil King Herod to slaughter all the town's toddlers in an attempt, once again, to destroy the seed. Ironically, the first Christmas carol, the first song inspired by Christmas, was sung by Bethlehem's grieving moms. Matthew 2, verse 18 records the morning. A voice was heard in Ramah. Lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. That was the first Christmas carol. Well, as John oversees the spiritual war of the ages, he correctly sees the birth of Jesus as pivotal in this battle. Apparently, Satan sensed it as well. That's why he was there in full dragon mode to resist Jesus' coming. This was the one victory that signaled a turning point in the whole war. You should think of Christmas as a beachhead. Christmas is Christianity's Normandy. As one author put it, the nativity was an all-out invasion on enemy-occupied territory. Every gun in the arsenal of darkness was aimed in the little baby's direction, and yet he still triumphed. The baby slipped through behind enemy lines. Hey, if Satan could have thwarted Jesus' birth, he could have kept God from invading his turf. If Jesus hadn't entered the world, all of Satan's gains would have been assured. Surely there will be more skirmishes to come. You remember the battle continued after Jesus' birth. A mob of angry legalists, they gathered there in Jerusalem. They tried to push him off a cliff, but he walked right through them. Demons stirred up a sea in order to drown him, and yet he calmed the waters. Jealous Jews plotted to kill him. Another King Herod beheaded his friend John. Jews and Romans conspired to flog and crucify Jesus. They even blocked up his grave with a huge stone. But as John sees it, when the male child was born at Christmas, it was the beginning of the end for Satan. For with Jesus in the world, it was only a matter of time. The dominoes started to fall. His birth then his sinless life, then his miracles, then his teachings, then his crucifixion, then his resurrection, then his ascension, then the establishment of his church. It all leads to Jesus' inevitable triumph. And thus verse 5 tells us, she bore a male child. And then he, John jumps all the way to the end, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. 
and her child was caught up to God in his throne. This is wonderful language. It's messianic language. It comes right out of Psalm chapter 2. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. The child promised to Israel and born in Bethlehem will one day rule the nations with a rod of iron. You see, this is what history is barreling toward. The kingdom of the Christ. When Jesus returns, my friend, when he comes back to this earth, it'll be his way or the highway. Allegiance to Jesus will be mandatory. Jesus won't come back running for office. He's not going to be kissing babies and shaking hands and campaigning for votes. It's a jungle out there. <laughs> but Jesus is the king of the jungle. When he comes back, he'll prove it. Well, ultimately, the male child will rule all the nations of the world. But what about the woman who birthed him? What will happen to the Jewish people in the end times? Well, John tells us in verse 6, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now here John fast forwards from the time of Christ to the end of the age, from 32 A.D., until sometime yet future. If this were a movie, a caption would appear between verses 5 and 6. You know, it would come across the bottom and it would read, Thousands of years later. The time frame, 1,260 days, refers to the scene that we studied back in Revelation 11. Remember the Hebrew prophet Daniel, he saw a final period of seven years in which God would wrap up his plans for his people Israel and the world at large. Daniel 9 tells us that this last seven years starts with a treaty that a Roman leader will strike a deal with the Jews. At that point, you can mark off seven years to the day when Messiah will return. Daniel also tells us that a terrible deed will occur at the midpoint at the 1,260-day mark. The leader that Israel trusts will enter the temple and desecrate God's altar. This violates the promise made to the Jews. And the betrayal scares Lady Israel so much so, she flees into the desert to a refuge that God has specifically prepared for her. We're told she'll be supernaturally fed and protected for a final 42 months. Recall, after the Hebrews exited Egypt, God fed them in the desert for 40 years. I'm sure he can handle 42 months. It'll be like Elijah. You remember when he was a fugitive from King Ahab? God hid him in the wilderness and catered him two meals a day. He had the meals flown in on beaks and talons. A flock of ravens del delivered the bread and the, and the meat. If God can care for the Israelites and for a prophet, he can protect and provide for these future Jews. Well, at the midpoint of this final seven years, whatever crime the Roman leader has committed, it'll not only scare the lady on earth, but it'll cause turmoil in heaven. Verse 7 tells us, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Now, I'll bet you this is the moment Michael's been awaiting for centuries. Michael, remember, is a warrior angel. He's one bad hombre. 
According to Daniel 12 verse 1, he's fiercely loyal to the Jews. He's also tangled with the devil a time or two. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 10 and in Jude verse 9. On top of that, Michael has had to listen to all of the garbage that Satan has been spewing over all these years. You remember, Satan still has access to heaven. Just read Job chapters 1 and 2. He still comes before God's throne. He comes there often to accuse the saints. He comes there leveling accusations against you and me. And I'm sure Michael is weary of hearing Satan bring stuff up that's been covered by the blood of Christ. I mean, it's like an insult to God's grace. It's a It's a mockery of the cross of Christ. And I'll bet you Michael has just been biding his time every time that old lizard scoots up there to God's throne and starts mumble something. You know, Michael's done it. He's he's under his breath. He's thinking, God, when are you going to let me take this guy out? He's getting angry. Well, at the midpoint of this final seven-year period, Satan will go too far. Revelation 13 tells us that his partner, the beast, sets up his own image in the temple. And claims to be God and requires the world to worship him. When this happens, God says, enough. War breaks out in heaven. And what this war looks like, wow, who knows. I mean, how do angels and demons do combat? I'll bet it's vicious. I bet it makes an MMA cage match look like a ballet dance. It's a good thing that Michael and the angels loyal to God have Satan and his demons outnumbered two to one. All I know is this, 2 Kings 19 tells us that a single angel killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. I mean, angels have serious swag, man. Imagine a battle royale in heaven. Galactic heavyweights go toe-to-toe. Whatever occurs, man, it makes Star Wars look like a dart throw. In the end, Michael's troops trump Satan's hellish forces. They kick Satan out of heaven once and for all. From this point on, a beat-up Satan, he walks up to heaven and he'll swipe his card and it'll read, Access Denied. He's barred. Verse 9 sums it up. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. This is the beginning of the great deceiver's unveiling. Did you know Satan will finally be exposed for what he is? You see, the devil has lied and intimidated and manipulated for thousands of years. He's twisted God's word. He's added to it. He's taken from it. His lies have kept mankind in in the dark, blind to God's truth. In fact, i got to say it. I hope that you are not under Satan's sway this morning. I hope that you have not been blinded to God's truth. But I'll say this. If you haven't been immersing your mind in the Word of God, there's a good chance you are. We all need to challenge every assumption that we hold with biblical truth. We need to constantly filter our minds with the Word of God. Ephesians 4 verse 23 commands us, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. God wants us to have transformed minds, not ones tainted with Satan's lies and misconceptions. There's a verse in Isaiah 14 that speaks of Satan when we finally lay our eyes on him. You probably have never read this verse, but you will this morning. 
There we're told. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? They'll say, is this the man? By this point, Satan is a defeated foe. He's been stripped of his power on the cross of Christ. He's become puny and feeble. And when we see him, it'll suddenly dawn on us that the only power Satan ever had was that which we gave to him. That we just yielded to him. We allowed a bully to push us around because we believed his lies and lacked the faith to stand up to him and resist him. We'll be ashamed. Well, obviously, no one at this time in heaven is crying over Satan's banishment. In verse 10, heaven erupts in joy and in praise. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The name Satan means adversary. Devil means accuser. You see, Satan is an accuser. He's a condemnation junkie. That's who Satan is. God is the one who's rich in mercy. Whereas the devil is the one who's quick to remind you of your sin. He stirs up guilt while God is pouring out grace. Did you know Satan can bury you under an avalanche of condemnation in the very moment that God is wanting to forgive you? Did you know that? Hey, Jesus was buried so that you and I don't have to be. He died in our place so that God could pardon us forever. I hope you've received his pardon. Hey, I've hanged my hopes on Romans 8 verse 1. The verse says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that's me. Don't let Satan use your failures to destroy your faith. Here's a great quote to memorize. I challenge you to memorize it this week. Whenever the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Well, our keys to victory are here in verse 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Now, here's how you build a strong faith. Here's how you build a faith that overcomes the devil's lies and condemnation. You cultivate three attitudes. First, you lean on the blood of the Lamb. i got to ask, are you trusting in the blood of the Lamb today? God's power is in the blood. Sin is real. The death it causes is very real. Not just theoretical, it's real. And did you know the antidote is also real? Christ came and shed His blood for you and me. If you were a Jew, you'd know this truth right in your gut. Each time you sinned, you had to bring a little lamb to, to the temple. This little lamb, you, you've been feeding it. It's grown up in your flock. You've treated it like a pet. But you have to bring this lamb now to the temple. You have to watch the priest take this lamb. He lays his hands over the lamb's head. He confesses your sin over this little lamb. And you have to sit there and watch him take a meat cleaver and slit the little lamb's throat. You watch it as it whimpers, and then as its knees buckle, and then as it drops dead in a pool of its own blood. Well, I hope you're happy with the sin you committed, because that's what your sin caused. That's the punishment for your sin. I'm telling you, a Jew who was raised in the temple sacrificial service never took sin lightly. 
They were well aware of the necessity of the blood. And the same is true with the blood of Jesus. You're going to have your good days. You're going to have your bad days. But you need to build your righteousness on the blood. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in Jesus. Trust in His shed blood. It's always sufficient. Trust in the blood of Jesus and your faith will grow stronger. And then the second attitude that helped them overcome was the word of their testimony. It's been said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. I like that. I remember the day, the time, the exact place when I knelt and committed my life to Jesus. I go back there in my mind often. I was there. I'm telling you, it was real. I was there. You see, there's no denying a testimony. But if you don't have a time, if you don't have a place, if you've got no landmarks in your life that you can go back to and pin your faith, you'll wander. You'll wander from where you've been. You'll grow confused over who you are and even where you're headed. Every Christian needs a testimony. They need to nail down where and when they gave their life to Jesus. If you've never done that, maybe you, can, you've, you, you think you believe, you consider yourself a Christian, but you don't have a testimony. You don't have a time and a place when you've given your life to Jesus. I suggest you do that this morning. That you come forward after the service and pray with us here in the altar and give your life to Jesus. We need to be able to articulate where we stand. And then the third attitude that makes a strong faith is a selfless life. He says, they did not love their lives to the death. In other words, they knew there were some things more important than life itself. Pleasing Jesus and glorifying God is far more important than my next breath. Treasure in heaven and the power of God's word and the souls of the people around me are of far greater worth than I'll get out of this life. It's been said you don't really start living until you're first ready to die. I believe that. Knowing what matters most helps us overcome. Well, the crowd now appears in heaven. These are the men and women who've struggled with Satan in triumph. That's why they know what to expect from him. Verse 12, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, because he knows that he has a short time. And this would not be a good time to live on the planet earth. From here on out, Satan goes on the warpath. I mean, he's typically unbridled, but now Satan is totally off the chain. I mean, you think the devil is vile and vicious right now. Just wait until Michael and the angels boot him out of heaven. He'll act like a death row escapee with nothing to lose. Seething, frothing with resentment. Satan is going to try to strike back at God as viciously and as violently as he possibly can. He's going to go for the juggler. He's going to try to hit God where it hurts the most. And guess where he aims? Hey, if you want to hurt me, I'll tell you where you can. Go after my kids. Oh, man. I'd die a thousand deaths before I'd see any harm come to my children. And this is Satan's strategy. He goes after God's kids still on the earth, the Jews. You see, I believe all forms of prejudice and bigotry are sinful. But in my opinion, there's something especially sinister about anti-Semiticism. Satan hates whoever God loves. 
Understand at this point, the devil crucified Jesus, but now he's risen. Now he's in heaven. Satan's been persecuting the church, but now the church has been raptured. The church is in heaven. Now the Lord and his church are no longer vulnerable. Thus Satan zeroes in on the people group that God has chosen to favor in the past and will in the future. The Jews. Satan will try to destroy the woman who birthed the male child. I mean, Satan's no gentleman. He tries to rough up the lady. Nobody ever told him not to hit girls. This is what we're told in verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman and gave, who gave birth to the male child. Notice his first reflex when he gets thrown out of heaven is to attack God's people Israel. You remember what Jesus told the Jews in Matthew 24? He says, when you see the Antichrist, the abomination of desolation, when you see the Antichrist defile the altar in the temple, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. When you see that happen, you need to get out of Dodge. You need to run for the hills. Terrible persecution is on the horizon. That's what we see here. Satan turns his attention to the woman. Verse 14. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. God will give her wings to protect herself with speed, with agility. The Jews will vacate Jerusalem. You know, some folks identify a great eagle here as a first century description of a modern day military transport plane. That perhaps the Jews in Jerusalem will get airlifted out. There's a passage that may identify the location of this end times hideout that God has prepared for the Jews. Isaiah 16 verses 3 through 5 predict, Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler, for the extortioner is at hand. Moab will be a place of shelter. In Isaiah 16 verse 1, the prophet also mentions the Moabite city Selah or Petra. You've seen this city, Petra, if you viewed Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade. Petra was the backdrop used for the movie's final scenes. The city of Petra is in a valley about one square mile. It's secluded because of the canyon that serves as its entrance. This canyon is a mile long, but only a few feet wide, thus it's easily defensible. And this may be where God keeps the Jews out of Satan's reach during this last half of this terrible time. Well, certainly it's in the wilderness somewhere that the woman is nourished. And he gives another time frame for a time and times and half a time. Here's the third way John has earmarked the same time frame. 1,260 days, 42 months. Now he uses this familiar Hebrew idiom. A time and then times or two more. And then a half a time, that's three and a half. Here, I believe he's talking about the three and a half years, the 1,260 days, the 42 months, that God will protect the Jews from the presence of the serpent, we're told. And yet after this Jews' evacuation, Satan opts for plan B, verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman. He might cause her to be carried away by the flood. This could be a literal flood, or it could be an idiom. There's the Hebrew idiom for flood is that of an invading army. A flood would pour into the, or an army would invade. This could be the Antichrist genocide squad sent to Petra to exterminate the Jews who dared to flee there. We'll talk more about this next week when we look at the Antichrist as he comes to power. 
He comes to befriend the Jews. In reality, he turns into a Hitler-like character who tries to assassinate them. Well, in verse 16, God again comes to their rescue. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. Sounds like a Middle East earthquake at the right time in the right place. A fissure in the earth's crust rescues the Jews. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who kept the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. As we've mentioned, there will be Gentiles saved during this last seven-year period, and they'll also be targeted for hardship Here the dragon, when he fails to spill Jewish blood, he goes after anybody who's embraced Jesus as the Christ. And you see, this is John's point. Until Jesus returns, there will always be a battle raging. Don't be surprised when the battle rages around you, when you find yourself in a battle. There will always be a battle. This is nothing new. And it will be over soon enough. Right now, we have lessons to learn. God is calling us to be overcomers, and He's teaching us how. He's teaching us what to trust in. We need to trust in the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, and we need to settle what matters most. We need to make sure that we're willing to sacrifice our life for greater things. We need to be overcomers. Why? Because it's a jungle out there, but Jesus is the King of the jungle.